Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Everyday Oral Surgery Podcast. This is your host, Dr. Grant K. Stuckey. As a reminder, in this podcast, you will be hearing surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral max facial surgery. Most of the information shared will be based on personal experience and opinions. If you are a regular follower of the podcast, please go to our website, everydayoralsurgery.com, create a profile and log in. There you can post questions about topics that you would like to receive comments on from oral and maxillofacial surgeons. On the website, you can also sign up for the weekly newsletter that will highlight the current episodes. Additionally, if you are a true fan of the podcast, you can purchase our sweet merch such as cool jackets, hoodies, and hats with the Everyday Oral Surgery logo on it. The last and most important thing, if you would like to be a guest on the podcast or know someone that you'd like to hear from on the podcast, please, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com so I can get that set up for us. It's so important to keep making high quality content for all of us to learn. Without further ado, enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. Brian Bell. He's an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Oregon. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Grant. Happy to be here. Yes, this is awesome. Several people have told me to get in touch with you and get you on the podcast. I'm glad we're making it happen. My first question for you is if you could just kind of give us a brief history of your training and your current practice setup. Sure. So I trained in, well, I went to dental school at Creighton, then went to medical school and did my OMS residency at UNC and at University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. After that, I came to Portland, Oregon, and did two fellowships, the first in cranium maxillofacial trauma and the second in head and neck oncologic surgery. Finished training in 2001 and joined Head and Neck Surgical Associates and Legacy Health System at that time. And then in about 2010 or so, I accepted a medical directorship with a different health system, staying at Head and Neck Surgical accepted a, a medical directorship to really start de novo, a head and neck cancer program within Providence Cancer Institute. Providence is a separate health system. It's actually a behemoth of a health system now spanning seven states and 52 hospitals. But this was housed within Providence Cancer Institute and connected to the Early Childs Research Institute. And my charge was to build all of the components of a head and neck program, a comprehensive head and neck program, which we did over the last 12 years or so. And then about two years ago, two and a half years ago, right before the pandemic, I actually left head and neck surgical associates and went to work full time for the Providence Cancer Institute with a leadership position over surgical oncology, radiation oncology, and clinical programs for the Oregon region. So for the entire state and our seven hospitals within the state. I continue to have an active practice about two days a week. I operate or see patients in the clinic and the rest of the time is research and administration. Okay. Sounds good. And how are you involved or are you with the OHSU program? Sure. So, you know, that's a great question. We, I, I am and continue to be involved with training residents at OHSU. And from the outset, our program in Oregon has been tightly linked to OHSU, to Head and Neck Surgical Associates, to Legacy, and more recently to Providence, which gives us a unique opportunity to give residents uh, terrific exposure in all aspects of hospital-based oral and maxillofacial surgery. And that's been, I think, a shining star for training in Oregon. That history is really almost 40 years old. It started with Eric Dirks and Bryce Potter in the 90s. 
Even before that, Bryce, for years, took on rotating residents from OHSU. That grew over the years when Eric joined him in 1990. That grew over the years to have full-time residents and then two full-time residents from OHSU on the trauma service at Legacy Emanuel. That was the glue that kind of, I think, really helped solidify the program in so much as the trauma experience at Legacy was unfiltered. Oral and maxillofacial surgery residents were taking first call for cranial maxillofacial trauma seven days a week, 365 days a year. There was no ENT, there was no plastics, just OMS. And as we like to say, it was pluro to dura coverage. So it didn't matter if it was a class three fracture on number eight or a bullet through the carotid artery or anything in between, the OMS resident got the call. And so that really led to an unfiltered experience. And that continues today, almost 40 years later. We've gone through various adjustments in size. We have currently two full-time residents, but we also have rotators from Mayo Clinic and as well as military hospitals as well. But it continues to be a thriving program, and I've been honored to play a role in it for the last 20 years or so. That's awesome. And in regards to the actual surgical things you're doing, are you doing more of the resection, the reconstruction, both? What are you involved in? So my personal interest is in the ablative surgery. I work very closely still with members of Head and Neck Surgical Associates, so my partners. So I guess just a little more history about the program. It started with Eric and Bryce. I came on in 2001. We have had a tremendous group of surgeons join since then. Tuan Bui was with us for a number of years. Sam Bobek was with us for a little while. Even Josh Lubeck came and joined us for a little while. But the current group, which has been in place now for, gosh, less seven or eight years, consists of Alan Chang, Ashish Patel, Caitlin McGraw, and Babur Khatib. All of them are fellowship trained in either head and neck oncologic surgery and microvascular surgery or in, in the case of Caitlin in pediatric craniofacial surgery. Myself, I restrict my practice to head now to head and neck cancer only. For years, I did trauma and orthognathic surgery. That was the that was my primary focus. But now in my new role, I restricted only to cancer. Alan and Ashish and Bobber do both head and neck and microvascular, and Caitlin covers the trauma. And I actually also forgot, apologies to Lance, I forgot uh, we just recruited Lance Thompson, who was one of our former residents, did another pediatric craniofacial fellowship and then came back. So the group has grown and it's as strong as ever. We continue to have a footprint in the trauma program with the exclusive contract to deliver head and neck trauma services at Legacy Emanuel. And then I lead the head and neck program here over at Providence. So the group is well positioned uh, to continue to offer a comprehensive hospital-based OMS experience to the trainees now and into the future. That's awesome. You know, we have a lot of young listeners, I think a lot of dental students, a lot of residents who I think have interest in head and neck pathology and treating it. What would you recommend for these young students, I guess you could say, in regards to trying to figure out how to make up your mind and know if you really want to launch your career into something like this? That's a great question, Grant. I think, you know, to be a head and neck cancer surgeon is much more now to be a surgical oncologist than it used to be. And what I mean by that is the practice of oncology is transforming. Our knowledge of 
genomics and the immune response to cancer, as well as our ability to harness the power of the immune system to kill cancer, has really been transformative. And that's been powered by advances in knowledge in molecular genomics and immunology and in translating these things into the clinic. And so how we treat cancer is changing almost on a daily basis. And how we treat head and neck cancer in 10 years is not how we're going to be treating it now. All of this is to say that it is no longer, or the management, the surgical management of the head and neck cancer patient is no longer a job for the individual surgeon in a silo. Oncology is a team sport, and a patient with cancer has to be managed in a multidisciplinary fashion within a coordinated team that has all the necessary resources available to take care of these patients in the optimal fashion, including clinical trials. The fact is that for head and neck cancer, the treatment outcomes haven't really changed substantially in the last 50 years. Just as many people die as they did 50 years ago. And that's because we're doing exactly the same thing that we were doing 50 years ago. We're cutting out the cancer, we're radiating it afterwards, and sometimes giving them chemotherapy. That is changing now. It's beginning to change. There are dozens of clinical trials that will certainly alter this landscape and alter for the better patient outcomes moving forward. Uh, And so anyone that's interested in this field has to be prepared for a career that encompasses comprehensive oncologic training, as well as landing in a position that gives you access to that multidisciplinary care. Doing it in the office is not going to be something that will be a successful recipe moving forward. So that's a long-winded answer, Grant, to your question, but suffice it to say that it takes, I think, uh, it takes dedication, it's going to take curiosity, and it's going to take a desire on the part of someone interested in this field to put the time in and the commitment to taking care of patients with cancer. So it can't be something that you dabble in. Got it. Okay. You know, as a resident myself, we did a lot of malignant pathology and and treating it. And I think I, like a lot of other residents, had some mixed feelings in regards to treating it. It's very rewarding. You know, I love the experience of helping people who are in dire need and having, you know, great degree of stress in their life. But it's just so different and very contrary in a lot of ways to the average, you know, third molar case. It's a teenager that you see for, you know, 30 minutes and they're out and you never see them again. (laughs) And a cancer patient, you know, there's so much follow-up and treatment and hand-holding and they're both rewarding in their own ways. But I think a lot of residents struggle with knowing, you know, what to do and and which path to follow. Certainly there's always the other thought of time and then monetary stuff and there's so much involved. What would you say to that stuff? Yeah, no question, Grant. It is definitely a dichotomy. It's a choice. And the one thing I would say is that, you know, and by the way, I've spent a career and I've I've done all of it. I mean, I've been in private practice. I've been employed. I've had an active dental alveolar practice early, early on in my career. I've taken care of patients with trauma and evolved to where I am now, which is, you know, a full-time practice headed restricted to cancer. So I've done everything along the continuum of, of the specialty and it's all rewarding. It just kind of depends on what floats your boat, you know, what it is that you desire. And if, you know, I don't want to say if quality of life is what makes you, uh, what's 
most important for you, then you know, then you have to steer away from a, a head and neck cancer practice. That's not the case, but it is a different mindset, and it does mean you're going to give up some control in your practice environment, right? So one, I think one of the big advantages for a traditional OMS practice, traditional surgery practice, is that you know you can still practice in a small group. You can maintain your autonomy. You have a lot of control over your environment and in which you practice. It invites entrepreneurship. These are all real. And at the same time, you're doing a good service for patients and you're taking care of them. And it's fantastic. And if that's what is important and that's what you prioritize in your life, then I think then that's the way to go. If on the other hand, you don't mind working within um, larger health systems, such as academic medical centers or hospitals, uh, non-academic hospitals, and in which you're going to give up some of that control, you're going to have a boss, you're going to have a nice paycheck, but maybe it's not quite the same paycheck that you would have in a private OMS practice. So there is a bit of a trade-off there, but, you know, it depends on what you want to achieve in your career. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to hear those different aspects of it. I mean, I know as a resident, it seems like cancer and treating cancer patients is all consuming, but I'm guessing once you get to your level, it's not, you know, to the level of you're there at the hospital living, you know, 24 hours a day. I'm sure you have a life outside of cancer and things like that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think anybody that comes out of residency and starts working, whether they're in academics or whether you're building a private practice or whether you're, you know, working in a DCO or whether you're working for a big health system, we're all met early on in our careers with the same struggles, which and I certainly found this. You know, I think it's one of life's cruelties. At the same time, you're trying to build your business or build your career. Oftentimes, you know, you're building a family you're moving to a new town, you're starting a life, you're starting, you know, out with building new relationships. All of these things take time to nurture. And it doesn't matter if you're starting a private practice that's focused solely on dental alveolar and implants, or if you're starting a career, an academic career, you're still putting in sweat equity. You're still putting in a lot of time to build that career. And, you know, how you balance that with your personal life is the real trick, I think. And it's a challenge. But, you know, I would say that neither are mutually exclusive. You can have both, but you just have to realize that something has got to give one way or the other. And if you're going to be successful in your career, it's going to take rolling up your sleeves and going to work. And I'm sure you've seen that already in your career. Oh, for sure. Yeah, no matter what path you take, it's going to take a lot of work, especially if you have six kids like me, throw that in the mix and there's never, oh, uh, Grant. there's never a dull moment. I feel like work's my vacation and at home is my actual stressful time. Six kids. I'll tell you what my grandfather told my mom when she told her dad that she was pregnant with her four. She says, daughter, you need to figure out how that keeps happening and do something about it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you need to stop that immediately. <laughs> Jeez, that's how I felt after every child. I'm like, what are we doing? But no, they're very rewarding. It's just, they sure it, are. it's a lot going on. You know, we've had a couple other head and neck surgeons on the podcast. Just to hear it from you, for those who are interested and, and they're kind of planning on going that route, you know, what route do you recommend they take? Because I know in the past, you know, maybe it didn't matter as much if you 
had the MD or which program you went to? What is your you know personal advice on that matter? Sure. So I think, you know, while there is no question, well, the first decision you have to make is do you want to train in a single degree program or a dual degree program? And that's ultimately the first decision you have to make. And there's no question that you can do this work in either track. But I would say that the path is less complicated if you go to a dual degree route. And the reason I say that is, again, not because you can't be trained to do the work, not because you can't do it well and be successful. And there are certainly examples of that. Um, But it is already a crowded field. It is a field in which our colleagues in otolaryngology or plastic surgery already do this work at a high level. And depending on where you go, the obstacles to success will just be fewer if they don't all also have the degree issue to throw at you. And that's just speaking very frankly. So that's the first thing I would advise. And because, you know, 30 years ago, there weren't many options to doing this. Now, there are a lot of dual degree options. And so if you think you have kind of the mindset and the curiosity and the desire to put in the time that it takes to go to fellowship training and get the extra training and then, you know, go into a more hospital-based environment, then I think it's worth thinking it through. The second thing I would do is as you go through residency, avail yourself to mentors that are involved in the field. And those could be mentors within oral and maxillofacial surgery or mentors in otolaryngology and plastic surgery, whatever your interest is. And it could be scientific mentors, by the way, as well. Whatever your interest is, if you think you want to move in this field, get connected to a mentor early in residency and they will help guide you along the way. I think if we're going to be successful as a specialty in making a difference in the care of patients with head and neck cancer, it's going to be because we are training folks who want to do more than just operate. We want to train folks that are committed to advancing care. And that could look like basic science research. It could look like translational research and clinical trials. It could look like teaching, or it could look like other health services efforts. But whatever we do, we have got to advance the care and put ourselves in a position where we're not only doing things as well as our colleagues in other disciplines, but even better. And leveraging our training in both dentistry and medicine, I think, is a great example of how we can do things better because it gives us a unique insight into the management, not only of the disease, but also in the reconstruction and rehabilitation of these patients. So I'd choose a dual degree route if I could. I'd find mentors early. I'd certainly plan on fellowship. The days of doing this work without a fellowship are gone if they ever existed. So I would absolutely plan on doing a fellowship. Most of the fellowships now, and by the way, there's been a rapid expansion in the number of fellowships now. When I came out of training, there were four fellowships. There was ours in Portland, there was Michigan, there was Miami, and Maryland. Those were the four. Today, there are 16 fellowships, which is hard to believe in just a short period of time. So, and they're all over the country. Those were the only, when I came out, there were only four or five centers doing head and neck cancer, OMS training programs doing head and neck cancer. 
Today, there's about 50. About half the programs in the country now offer some sort of experience in which an oral and maxillofacial surgeon is doing at least the ablative surgery, if not the microvascular surgery. The other thing to think about is whether or not you want a one or two-year program. And I'm going to put my pitch in now for the two-year program. The fact is most of the fellowships are two years, not one year, but two years. And in the case of our fellowship in Portland, the first year is ablative surgery and the second year is microvascular surgery. All of the programs do for a little bit and how they integrate the training of those two disciplines within those two years, but most of them are two years. There are a couple of training programs, uh, fellowship programs that still do a one-year program. They're great programs, but I would argue that our most successful trainees are successful in part because that second year gives you added bit of experience and added bit of confidence coming out where wherever you land, you will be that much more ready to succeed. And I think that's particularly important if you're going into what I call hostile territory. So if you're going into a region or an institution that does not have a history of doing a lot of head and neck surgery, as an OMS doing a lot of head and neck surgery, then you have to make sure that you are confident and proficient as these operations or you're going to lose the confidence of those around you. And, you know, for example, you know, we've been doing this a long time in Oregon. And in Oregon, if a head and neck surgeon comes to Oregon, almost any hospital in this state and wants to do a neck dissection or even a laryngectomy or a thyroidectomy, nobody blinks. Nobody blinks. And that's because we're a trusted service in the community at both our academic medical center and here. That's not true everywhere else. And so if you are going into a region where you're kind of a trailblazer, you've got to make sure that you've got added experience. In that second year, it's almost finishing school. It, it just gives you that added skill. Yes, it's another year in your life. But, you know, if you're like me, I loved training. I trained for a long, long time. I had a good time and enjoyed the path. And that's, again, that's just kind of one of those decisions that you have to make. And if that's a big enough priority for you. The other thing, the last thing I want your listeners to think about, and this gets to what are we trying to do as head neck surgeons, right? So nobody cares if an oral and maxillofacial surgeon is doing the operation of a neck dissection or you know, taking out a cancer or doing a free flap. Nobody cares because there's other people that can do it right, and do it well. If we're only going to be successful if we are training and producing people that want to advance the field, that are dedicating their lives and their career to making care better. And that could look like new discovery. It could look like new therapies. It could look like innovative ways to reconstruct patients. It could look like, you know, bench to bedside work or just developing clinical trials. But we've got to make that care better. And if we aren't doing that, and we, if we don't prepare our, our folks to do that, then we're, then we're failing and we're setting them up for failure too. And so the last pitch I would say, even though it's more time, I think we've got to, as a profession, got to put our hands around our training track. And it's, yes, it's a long time already, six years, and then we're asking for two more years. And then I would take that further. And we have, for example, a third year of fellowship as part of our fellowship in Oregon, which is an immuno-oncology year. 
So I mentioned to you already, the practice of oncology is transforming, and that's largely through our knowledge of how the immune response, how the immune system responds, recognizes cancer cells and responds to them and harnessing the power of that. So immunotherapies have, for the first time in history, favorably improved survival for patients with any number of advanced solid tumors, and including head and neck cancer. These therapies are being integrated into the standard of care now for in the curative setting for patients with head and neck cancer. And the only way that we're going to contribute to that is by ensuring that our trainees are trained in the scientific method, trained in clinical trials, and able to speak the language and move these therapies on. And so, yes, it's going to take extra training. But, you know, if our goal is to set up a surgeon for success in an academic world, or in a hospital environment. That's what it's going to take. So it's an incredibly exciting time, I think, in our profession. But we've got to ensure that our trainees are equipped with the tools that they're going to need to enter this changing cancer environment. Excellent. Yeah, those are great, I think, you know, tips and things for those who are looking to go into the field to know. In regards to choosing an OMS program to go into, I mean, does it matter or one way or another which program you go into from the beginning? You know that you'd like to do, you know, head and neck cancer surgery. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So if you're like me and, and you came out of dental school kind of knowing, you know, this is what I want to do, then the programs I would look for are the programs that are already doing cancer. And it's not essential by any means, but it is helpful. It's helpful to become facile with operating at a neck with soft tissue surgery overall, with the anatomy, with managing the cancer patients that are, and the flat patients that are more complex. So if, again, if I had a choice, I would look for a program that already has an OMS that's on the faculty in which the residents can experience that. If you're not sure, if you're on the fence as to what, you know, I'm just getting out of dental school, I don't know what exactly I want to do. I think I want to keep my options open. Then I would look for a well-rounded program. One that, you know, covers the core elements of OMS training in a good fashion. And that, that's, you know, obviously dental alveolar and implants and anesthesia, orthognathic surgery, TMJ, and trauma. I think trauma is, is a glue that keeps it all together. And then, you know, head and neck, even if you don't have a, an OMS that's doing it at your institute, most programs have rotations on head and neck services or, or some exposure to cancer where you can at least get some advice. But, but if you're sure you want to do it, I think in an ideal world, find a program that's doing it already. Okay. In regards to those programs, you know, that do have a fellowship, because I've heard it both ways, you know, some people who are going into the field from the beginning feel like, oh, I don't want to go where there's a fellowship because, you know, I want the program that gives the resident the more hands-on experience, whereas a fellowship may take that away. You know, I mean, what do you comment on those types of situations? That's a great question, Grant, and we get that a lot. My answer is that I can't think of a resident. I've been training residents for more than 20 years now. I can't think of a resident who ever came out of a program that wasn't adequately trained to do the core elements of OMS, regardless of whether or not they were the primary operator on head and neck cases. So as long as you're going to a program that provides those core training elements, trauma, orthognathics, TMJ, dental implants, 
you're going to be okay, whether or not there's a fellow there that's the primary operator. You get that deeper dive in fellowship. For example, I'll tell you how it works at our program, and I know this is how it works at most of the fellowship programs with which I'm familiar. So at our program, the Headneck Fellow is obviously, their primary responsibility is managing that patient with headneck cancer. And when they first start in July and they're coming out of a program, I'm going to be a little more hands-on in that operation, depending upon that fellow's level of experience and you know, and hands-on talent. So I'll be a little more hands-on at that point. But my goal is by you know six months or so into the fellowship that that fellow, and this is in a two-year fellowship, right? So six months into that fellowship, I expect that fellow to be doing most of the operation independently. We're pretty close to it. And by the end of the year, I expect that fellow to be taking the resident through that same operation that I took him or her through earlier in the year. That makes sense. So I think a good busy program doesn't exclude residents from being the primary assistant or the primary operator on a head and neck case, if that's the interest, right? Is it going to be all the time? No, but it's going to be enough of the time over the course of their training that they'll get some darn good experience. And I can tell you, those folks that do come out of those training programs are much more facile at just basic surgical skill in the neck, for example, than those patients that, or that those residents that came out of a more traditional OMS program that's mostly doing bone surgery. That's good to hear. You know, my next question is in regards to the actual program there at OHSU. I think, you know, there's a lot of dental students and residents who listen to these programs who want to know more about the actual programs. I've had the blessing of interviewing Dr. Ingolstadt on our podcast. One of my favorite guys, by the way. (laughs) Yes, he is awesome. He highlighted a little bit about the program there, but I wanted you as well, maybe just to kind of give some of your PowerPoints on the Oregon program and kind of what it has to offer. Sure. So I'm biased, of course. I think we have the best training program in the country. But so you'll have to have that disclaimer. But let me tell you why I think it's the best one in the country. First of all, through the leadership of Bob Mile years ago, who was chairman of OMS at at OHSU at the time, he engineered a major gift from Wilbur Van Zyl to establish the Van Zyl Scholarship. And this is a scholarship, an endowed fund that essentially pays for the medical school of OMS residents. So our residents come, if you're accepted to this program, you get free medical school. That's a big deal. And as you know, medical school isn't cheap and we're already, you know, our trainees are already coming out of training and debt. This helps tremendously with that. So as long as you keep your grades up and do well in medical school, it is a, a free ride. So I think that in and of itself is a reason to come. But outside of that, I think the partnership between OHSU and Headneck Surgical Associates is a major, major strength in in sort of the same way, you know, your listeners, I'm sure will be familiar with the Parkland JPS partnership in in Texas, right? It's it's a very similar partnership. This is a partnership between an academic institution and a very busy academic minded and productive private practice that has formal affiliations with other major health systems in town for both trauma and cancer. And so the resident experience will be 
completely comprehensive as it touches every aspect of our current scope of practice in oral and maxillofacial surgery. That includes in the dental school environment where they're getting trained to do, you know, dental alveolar and dental implants and anesthesia working in a multidisciplinary dental environment, as well as a hospital side where they are getting trained in orthognathic surgery, in temporomandibular joint surgery. And as I mentioned earlier, in an unfiltered trauma experience. So most of the training programs in the country, even if they're doing trauma, maybe it's at best, it's every third night, sharing call with plastics and ENT. At worst, it's an equitable call. So it's you know fewer call days and those call days are restricted anatomically. So sometimes they don't do frontal sinuses or they don't do orbits or they're only doing jaw fracture or what have you. So there's none of that. As I mentioned earlier, it's at least on the legacy side, it is is further coverage. It is doesn't matter if it's an Ellis class three fracture in number eight, a bullet through the carotid artery or a panfacial injury, the OMS resident gets it all. So that's really, really unique. Even other things, you know, routine, you know, infections like peritonsillar abscesses or, you know, Ludwig's engine cases or or whatever, that all goes to the OMS. So you get tremendous experience in managing complex infections and managing everyday ER problems and the most complex trauma injuries there are. So that in and of itself would make an exceptional OMS residency experience. If you add on the fact that you're doing comprehensive head and neck surgery, and that is not only oral cavity, by the way. So our head and neck program, our fellowship program in Portland is comprehensive head and neck. So we do oral cavity, we do oral pharynx, we do larynx, we do thyroid, we do salivary gland and skull base. There's nothing that we don't touch. And we're also doing our own microvascular free flaps. So all of that is internal. All of that is within the OMS program. And the resident gets to experience all of that along the continuum of cancer care. And then on top of that, you can avail yourself, he or she can avail themselves to research expertise at both OHSU and at Providence, where we have a robust cancer research program. Uh, and you can tailor your training to meet that expertise or meet your goals of training. So another long-winded answer, but but I hope that gives you some insight. Geez, you had me when you said medical school is free. That, yeah. was, enough. <laughs> <laughs> that was enough for me to say. Well, I didn't start with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is awesome. And I, I mean, I know several of the faculty by acquaintance and things, and it just just so many outstanding individuals you guys have on staff is so awesome. And I'll also add that it is the exceptional faculty at on both sides, what we say both sides of the river. So both at OHSU and the groups at Head and Neck Surgical Legacy Providence, exceptional faculty. And these are very, very well-trained people, dedicated people, and dedicated to the education of residents. And it's been just an absolute privilege for me to work with so many great folks over the years. That's awesome. Well, Brian, thank you for taking the time to kind of run through some of that stuff for us. Real quick, if there are listeners who have further questions, are you okay if they reach out to you? Absolutely. hundred percent. My email is richard.bell. My first name is Richard. I like that name. So she called me Brian, but which is my middle name. But my email is richard.bell at providence.org. Richard.bell at Providence.org. And you can also follow me on Twitter, R. Brian Bell, or at R. Brian Bell on Twitter. I, you know, 
always happy to engage with and help young people that are interested in a career in oral and maxillofacial surgery in general. We have the best profession in the world. It's a tremendous marriage of medicine and dentistry. And I'm just, I think the future has never been brighter, really. That's awesome. And then finally, we end every podcast with four rapid fire questions. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds high pressure, but it's really not. The first question for you is, what is the best book you've read in the past year? Best book I read in the past year, most memorable was a book called The Power Broker. By It was about a guy named Robert Moses, who it weighs about 10 pounds. And it felt like it was a thousand pages, but it's a, a really fascinating book about the man who started by building the park system in New York and ultimately built most of the transportation infrastructure in New York State and certainly in New York City. And in doing so, kind of built an empire. And it's a fascinating story of kind of his rise and fall, if you will, and the lasting implications of his work. It's a great read. Awesome. I'll look it up. Next question is what non-oral surgery thing have you done or do in your career that helps you with your daily oral surgery skills? Let's see. I would say golf, mostly because golf, I'm a terrible golfer. For some reason, I continue to play the game, even though it makes you want to bang your head against the ground. It teaches you patience. It teaches you perseverance. It teaches you humility. All of these things are very useful characteristics to carry with you into your professional life. Oh, for sure. Yes, I love golf as well, but I'm very bad at golf, but so fun. I mean, yeah, a lot of sports can provide many of those things. My son's a 17-year-old high school student who's a very good golfer, and he that's one of the joys of my life is playing with him, but he finally told me the other day, he said, Dad, I'm not going to be able to play with you anymore unless you take a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you gotta step up your game there, Dad. <laughs> That's hilarious. Next question for you, and I'm not sure you know if you're still extracting teeth, but the question is what forceps do you use to extract tooth number five? <laughs> uh, I think it's a 150 150, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah the upper universal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's, okay. that's what I use. I do still take out teeth. Actually, I would say I take out teeth in cancer patients, and generally the fellow does that with a resident. Got it. (laughs) Okay. Sounds good. Last question. What is your favorite quote? My favorite quote. I have to think about that. Let's see. Do you have a quote or a mantra that you repeat to your, your residents or fellows ever? All that glitters is not gold. Yes, that is true. You know, yeah, I mean, that's a Tolkien quote from The Lord of the Rings. And, you know, I think it speaks to so much in our lives, in our daily lives, because, and, you know, it gets to the grass is is always greener. And it's so much not the case. You know, I've seen, for example, some of our former residents or fellows that have gone, that seem to be continually searching for some kind of professional happiness. And, you know, I think we have to look back at ourselves and look at the work that we're doing and be satisfied with the great work that we are doing. Don't always be looking for something better, for something greener, for something sexier or whatever it is, right? 
Um, yes. Satisfied with what you're doing. Do it well, but know that whatever your daily work is, you're doing a service for people, for human beings, and you're making their lives better. I just think in just about any walk of life, if you're satisfied, you can look at yourself in the mirror in the morning, know that you did your best for that patient or those patients that day. You can look back at the end of your life knowing that you had a good, rewarding career and a, and a good life while you're here. Yep. That reminds me of the quote, you know, the grass isn't green on the other side, it's green where you water it. Uh, someone, <laughs> someone told me that. And it's just so true that like, you know, it's green where you put the effort in and where you focus. And so often we're chasing, you know, what other people are doing and how they're watering their grass. And once we get there, we realize, you know, it's not any better than, than the grass that we were already standing on. We might as well work on what we've got and do the best with, with our situation and our scenario. Yep. Anyways. That's absolutely right. Yep. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and, you know, I wish you the best and hopefully we can reconnect someday. Thank you, Grant. I really appreciate it. It's an absolute honor to be on your podcast. And like I told you, I've listened to you a couple of times now and just, it was great. So hopefully you'll invite me back in a few years and we can see where we've come in all this time. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thanks, Grant. You take care. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. If you are an oral and maxillofacial surgeon and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed or feedback on a certain episode that has already aired, please call or email or text me. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode.